Let's open up to John chapter 10. We're going to look at at verses 22 to 42 as we finish out this chapter. And again, we started at the beginning of the year working our way through the Gospel of John, paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And here we are finishing up John chapter 10. And so remember, if you have no idea where John is, that's okay. It's in the New Testament. Feel free to use the table of contents or turn to about the middle of your Bible and start flipping to the right. And you'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And so look for the big number 10, that's the chapter that we're going to be in, and then look for the little number 22, and that'll be the verse that we are starting uh, at this morning for our, for our sermon series. And you'll see the title of our message is, A Divine Shepherd Brings Divine Security. There's that word again. <clears throat> so as you're turning there and opening up to John 10, let me tell you a story. Back in 1924, a pair of engineers set out to build cars that could withstand the rugged roads and harsh winters of their native country of Sweden. And three years later, their first model, the OV4, rolled off the line, and it was just one of 280 built in that first year. The next year, there was only 300 built. So you can see, started off with a really kind of humble output in production. But since then, that little company has gone on to sell millions and millions and millions of cars, trucks, and heavy equipment all over the globe. You may have noticed or may have picked up that that company is Volvo. The Swedish company Volvo started back in 1924. And the amazing thing about this, when you think about Volvo in their history, which is 94 years if you are doing the math, something has, Volvo has also done something over the course of that 94-year history, which is actually pretty incredible. Besides building a really loyal customer base, they've also developed a reputation for safety and reliability. We owned a Volvo V70 wagon for years. It was blue. My wife, Rebecca, loved it. I loved it, too, because I knew that my wife was riding around in basically a mini tank. That thing was just safe. Although, I didn't like it for one reason. I hated how expensive the replacement parts were. If you've ever owned a Volvo, you know that every, even just this tiny little piece, it's 100 bucks. There's no way you can do it. 100 bucks and up. There's nothing under 100 bucks. For, that goes on to a Volvo, but they last forever. And you think about what they've done. Volvo spent untold millions of dollars over the years getting you to immediately associate the word safety with the Volvo brand, and it worked. You know, when you think Volvo, you think the word safety. It's even in their ads, Volvo safety. They've spent millions over the years getting you to freely associate those two words together. And so we think about this morning, I want you to do another kind of free association exercise. When I say a word, I want you to think what comes to mind. And so when I say the word security, what comes to mind? You don't have to answer, just in your own mind. When I say the word security, what pops up in your head? It may be a guard holding a rifle. It may be a master padlock. It might be a really long internet password with a bunch of symbols and uppercase and lowercase letters in it. It might be a castle with a moat. It might be a a gated community. It might be enough money in the bank to ride out any disaster that you can think of. It might even be the picture of Alcatraz sitting off by itself on an island. You know, when you think, when you hear that word security, what comes to mind? One thing that I'll bet, I bet no one in this room, when they heard the word security, immediately thought of a lone shepherd on a hill with a tiny little flock. I bet you probably didn't think about that. 
Now last week, we looked at the well-known passage where Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd and the door and the gate. We see these seven I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. We looked at two of them. I am the good shepherd. I am the door and the gate. And he contrasted his ministry with the Pharisees who he referred to as hirelings because they only cared for themselves, not the sheep. And Jesus reminded us all that we can trust him as the genuine shepherd because he laid down his life for the sheep. He proved that he is the good shepherd. He proves that he's all in for his people because he laid down his life for them freely. Remember, it was a voluntary thing. And as we read this gospel account, we need to keep in our mind every single sentence that we move forward in this this gospel account. Every single week, we move forward to the cross. We're marching towards the cross inevitably. And Jesus knew that the cross was coming, and yet he still willingly, freely laid down his life to secure salvation for his people, for his flock. It's an amazing thought when you think about it. And so this week, we're going to learn why having the good, the genuine shepherd brings safety and security to our lives, regardless of the circumstances. We'll see how all things we look to in this life for security pale in comparison to the security that that shepherd brings. There are several promises given to the flock of God in this passage. Remember, we're still in this shepherd and sheep kind of illustration that Jesus is using. And there's some, there's some real promises here that are given to the flock of God. And I want to see if you can pick up on them as we read. And so with that in mind, with our brains woken up, let's go to the Scripture. John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. I'll remind you, this is the very Word of God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them... Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no son, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord endures forever. I'm thankful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word this morning. Please pray with me. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we need to hear a word from outside of ourselves, and we are thankful that you have given us that word. And so, Father, may we approach it with humility. Speak to our hearts, O Lord. Redescribe reality to us. Convict us of our sin. Lord, convict us of the ways that we have made you very small. And Father, remind us of your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Remind us of your, your divinity, that you are high and lifted up and you are holy, holy, holy. Father, we long to worship you even as we hear your word this morning. And so we pray and ask that you would meet us here. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we look to this passage this morning, if you're a note-taking type of person, we're going to ask one big question. And that big question is this, why is the security Jesus offers better than anything we can look to in this life? Why is the security Jesus offers better than anything we can look to in this life? Remember, thinking about that word security and how that plays itself out in our day-to-day lives. And so we're going to answer with two big points this morning. Number one, we're going to see that his protection will never falter. Number two, we're going to see that his promises will never fail. So we're asking again the question, why is the security Jesus offers better than anything we can look to in this life? Let's look at that first point. His protection will never falter. And I hope this is good news for you. When you look about the context of what's going on here, most scholars believe that we now move forward two months between verse 21 and verse 22. So two months have elapsed. Remember, we have been looking at, for the past few weeks, this Feast of Tabernacles and all that was going on where Jesus said, I'm the light of the world and I'm the bread, and all this was going on during the Feast of Tabernacles, which most people believe you typically was happening around October, kind of the end of the harvest before the winter. And now we move forward in verse 22, you see this new feast uh, that's that's, uh, given to us, which is called the Feast of Dedication. And this happened in December, and so we've skipped ahead a bit of time. And you think, why would John do this? John uses chronological markers like this to move his narrative along. And one thing that he's also doing is he's showing how Jesus fulfills all of these feast days. And so we've gone from one feast to another feast as just a chronological marker. Hence the gap in time. And so this eight-day feast, the Feast of Dedication, commemorated the overthrow of Syrian oppression and pagan worship in the temple, and this revolt that was led by this guy named Judas Maccabeus in 164 B.C. His nickname was The Hammer. Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. What a cool nickname to have associated with you down through history. Judas the Hammer. And they reclaimed the temple, and he fought back and led this revolt, and the temple was cleaned out, and it was rededicated to the Lord, hence the name, the Feast of Dedication. This revolt happened during the lunar month of Kislev, and was an annual feast during that time of year, and candles were lit in every Jewish home during this time. You're probably figuring out where we're going. Jewish festival, lighting lanterns in the wintertime. When we think about what's going on here, this is almost like a July 4th. This is a freedom from oppression. These people were beaten back. The temple was rededicated. It was a big deal in the life of Israel. We commonly refer to this time in the life of the Jews as Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. The, The Hebrew word Hanukkah means dedication. That's where we get that from. And so this was this eight day winter festival of lights that happened every year. And so that's where we are, if you kind of place yourself in that, in the narrative. And look at verses 23 and 24 as we open up here. 
Jesus was going about his business in the temple when the Jews, and remember these are the Pharisees who are still trying to kill him, they're still trying to trap him, they're still trying to take him down. That started in chapter 5, we're still in the midst of that right now. So these, these Jews surround him to see if Jesus would declare himself to be the Messiah. They're trying to trap him. And up until this point, Jesus has used metaphors and figures of speech to refer to himself. Some examples of this is Jesus referring to himself as, I'm the bread of life, or I'm the light of the world, or I'm living water, I'm the door, I'm the son of man. Moses wrote about me. Before Abraham was, I am. I am of my father. He's been using these other figures of speech to speak to himself and his ministry and where he came from. And having grown tired of Jesus' evasion, they gang up on him and they try to force an answer out of him. But Jesus knows their hearts and he doesn't play their games. Look at what he says in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Jesus is being evasive to avoid being stoned. And we think, why? Now remember, the Jews have been trying to kill him, and they've been trying to stone him. But why would he do this? We read throughout the Gospel of John that it says, My hour has not yet come. Jesus knew that it was not the right time. His hour had not yet come. And he also knew, keep in mind, he knew the cross was going to be the method of his death. He knew that from the very beginning. And so the Jews are trying to stone him and take him out, and he knows that my time has not yet come. And I know that I'm marching forward towards the cross. He points not only to all the words he had spoken, which many immediately recognized as being from God. We see this, Jesus teaches, and there's people that go, whoa, there's something different about this guy. He speaks with such authority. But he also references and refers to his public miracles as validation of his divine status. I mean, think about what we've already looked at. These things that validate Jesus as the true divine son of God. Changing water to wine. Walking on water. Healing the lame man, healing the blind man, feeding the five thousand. I mean, think about all of these miracles that have happened up until this point. And Jesus said, it's not just my words that I speak to you, that I tell you that I'm of the Father, but it's also these other miracles that I perform in front of you. They validate that I'm the guy. I'm the one. Verse 26 is the absolute dagger. What he does is he tells them that they don't need more evidence. They were in a state of unbelief and outside the flock of God and thus unable to recognize the voice of the shepherd standing right in front of them. Earlier, Jesus said that they were in league with Satan and they proved that by constantly trying to tear him down. Remember, we talked about being of the Father. You're of the Father. And he looks at them and says, I can tell that you're not of the Father. Of course, he's God. He knows their hearts. But he's laying this out in front of them because you are trying to kill, actively kill, the one whom God has sent. And so he, he says that you are in league with, you show that you are with another father, and his name is Satan. That instead of being under-shepherds of God's flock, as they were called to do, Jesus is actually saying, you're not an under-shepherd, you're actually a wolf. You're actually a wolf trying to break in and to tear up the, the flock of God. You think about what's going on here, and you notice the Jews' response in verse 31. Do you think they really liked what he told them? No. Look at what they do in verse 31. They pick up stones. They pick up stones. And they're ready to stone Jesus. Why? Look at verse 33. What, what could they possibly have against him? Jesus answered them, It is not good. It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you. These are the Jews answering Jesus. The Jews answered, It's not, good. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. 
Remember, this has been the charge leveled against Jesus from the very beginning. And so again, we're asking the question is, is Jesus really who he says that he is? Nobody nobody doubts the fact that there was a man named Jesus who walked around in Jerusalem and was killed on a Roman cross. Nobody, Nobody questions that. The real question is, is he who he claimed to be, which is the divine son of God and the door, the only door, the only way? Is he who he really claimed to be? That's the question that we all need to wrestle with. And so they were claiming that Jesus was making himself God, which they saw as blasphemy. Now, verses 34 to 39 can seem a little tricky to understand, but what Jesus is doing is actually calling them on the carpet using the scripture that they claim to know and follow and be experts in. He says, is it not saying the law? That's basically the scriptures that they have at the moment. And remember, these were folks who were, they prided themselves on, we are experts in the law. And so in verse 34, Jesus refers to Psalm 82, verse 6, where human beings were referred to as lowercase g gods. Most scholars think this was probably a reference to the time of the judges and was kind of a catch-all phrase to describe the leaders of Israel. These people were put in place and they were kind of put there by God. Here's what Sproul said, which I thought was a really helpful quote, kind of thinking about this little passage here, 34 to 39. He said, in all probability, it was a reference to human judges who carried out a divine function dispensing justice. In popular nomenclature, they were called gods. So Jesus was appealing to historical precedent. He was saying, in the Old Testament, some human beings were called gods and nobody picked up stones to kill them for blasphemy. Why are you trying to stone me? You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, you claim to be experts in the law, but it says over here something different. And so what are you trying to actually stone me for? In verse 35, Jesus reminded them and us this morning of the trustworthiness and truthfulness of the Scripture by showing that everything he was was done to fulfill the Scripture. He said the Scripture is to be unbroken. And unlike the Pharisees who were quick to add to the Scripture, you see this again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, especially six times. They're called the six antitheses where the Pharisees had added to the law or they had changed it a little bit to make it easier to keep. And what Jesus does is he goes in these six instances, and you'll hear this familiar kind of way that he said, he said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You have heard it said that murder is just defined to the actual act of killing someone. And so because of that, you have basically said, well, I'm not guilty of that. But I say unto you, anyone who has been angry with another brother in their heart is guilty of murder. He raises the standard back up. And so what Jesus is doing here is laying this law in front of them and raising the standard back up and calling them on the carpet. Jesus is using something they held dear as the instrument to reveal their own hypocrisy, and he's done that over and over again. In verses 37 and 38, Jesus again combines his words and deeds together to once again point to the veracity of his claim that he's a divine son of God. And in verse 39, as you can see, the Pharisees didn't take kindly to this, and what do they do now? They try to arrest Jesus, but he was, eva- he was able to evade them once again. Why? Because his time had not yet come. And so again, after in, look at verses 40 and 41. After leaving the unbelieving Pharisees, Jesus came back to the same place mentioned back in chapter 1, and many sheep heard the voice of the shepherd for the first time, and verse 42 tells us that many believed in him. They heard the voice of the shepherd. 
Again, what you see, and I hope you get the big picture here, we see a picture of a sovereign God in complete control of the entire situation, working all things according to the counsel of His own will, and that gives us hope. Jews are trying to take him out. They're trying to get him to say things. But he's still in control in the midst of this. He's sovereign. And so God knows what's going on through all of this. And that gives us hope even now. Now why? Look at verse 27. Verse 27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We see here is again, we think about how God is sovereign and in control of all things. And verse 27 reminds us that God sovereignly calls his sheep to himself. We talked about this a ton last Sunday. Verse 28, the first half of that verse, it says that he gives his sheep eternal life. The second half of verse 28 through verse 30 says that no one can snatch these sheep from the shepherd or the father's hand because they are one and the same. The shepherd and the father are together. Nobody can snatch the sheep from my father's hand. It's amazing when you think about it. I mean, think about that word security and what hope that gives us as we walk in this life. What this reminds us of, and hear this, what this reminds us of is that God holds tightly to us, not the other way around. We see a sovereign hand of a good shepherd who holds fast to his sheep, even when they're wiggling around. He still holds on to him. Isn't that hopeful? That hymn that we've sung before, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. He is the one that holds me safe in His hand. I mean, imagine walking around the rim of Little River Canyon. You've been up to, you know, I don't know if you've been up there. It's a pretty big drop to the bottom. Imagine walking around on the rim of Little River Canyon or on near the edge of one of the waterfalls, like go to DeSoto Falls where you have that you know, little walkway and there's like a rail that's like this big that keeps you from falling over. And imagine taking with you a little kid. You would not say, hold on to my hand, and then completely rely upon that small child to fully follow through with the commitment. You know for certain that they're going to let go of your hand. You know it's going to happen. And so what you do is you know fully well that the child is going to forget, so you hold tightly to them. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel. You know full well that that little kid is going to forget. And so you, as the watchful one, because you love that child, you're going to hold on tightly to them. Their hand may look like this the whole time, but you've got them. you got them by the wrist. That's what we're talking about here this morning. Again, that hymn. Written by the Getty, he will hold me fast. When I fear, my faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. Amen to that. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. The chorus goes, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Do you get the picture? Christ holding tightly to us. God's protection for his people never falters. He holds tightly to his sheep forever. And this is a promise that offers great comfort because it's a promise that only God can make. Only God can make this promise. Only God can keep this promise for eternity. Imagine if it were up to you to sustain that promise. Imagine if it were up to you to hold tightly to God through every aspect, every waking minute of your life. It was up to you to hold fast of Christ because if you lost your grip for just a second, he was gone. Like staying close to a ship out on the ocean. 
you know for certain as soon as you fall overboard, those two things are starting to move away. What if it was left up to you to hold on to God, to make all of these promises work every minute of every day? It's backbreaking, and you know you can't do it. Isn't it more comforting to know that the Good Shepherd holds tightly to you? He holds on to you even when your faith is failing, even when you feel like sin's got you by the throat. He holds you fast. Why? Because He loves you. Changes everything. It allows us to walk in hope because God is sovereignly calling His sheep to Himself. God's protection for His people never falters. He holds tightly to us forever. The things that you look to in this life to offer you security will always fail you in the end because they're not eternal. Again, we're asking the question, why in the world is this security that Jesus offers better than anything we could look to in this life? Everything else that you look to in this life is going to fail you. Think about this. We're always just one stock market crash, one electrical spark in our house, one unforeseen illness, one breakup away from losing our perceived security. It's like we're on the knife edge all the time. The thing that we, you look to money, you're one stock market crash away. If you look to your house and the stuff that you own, this is what gives me security. You're one small electrical spark away from that thing burning down. You think that your identity is wrapped up in the car that you drive? You're one wreck away from that being taken away from you. You think about all these things that we look to in our lives for our own security, our own health and wellness, and that's the thing that makes me important. You're one unforeseen sickness away. Romans 8, 38-39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will what? Be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every blessed word of it, come what may, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so what Christ offers by faith is not perceived security. It's promised security. It's not perceived security. It's promised. You can take it to the bank. This is not a religious crutch for those society would call weak-minded. They say, oh, you're just looking to that, and that's just a salve for you. That's such a crutch. Religion is such a crutch. It's not that. It's not a religious crutch for those that society and the culture would call weak-minded. What is it? It is an absolute, unshakable anchor for those who know that they're weak apart from Christ. You say, oh, y'all are so weak. We go, I know. That's why I need Jesus. That's why I cling tightly to that. I am weak. In and of myself. That's why I need a good shepherd. And so because we know and recognize that we are weak apart from Christ, we know that we need to trust Him by faith. That we can't do it on our own. So His protection will never falter. Second point, shorter than the first. I'm watching the time. Second point, His promises will never fail. Okay, so His protection will never falter. His promises will never fail. Remember, we're asking the big question. Why is the security that Jesus offers better than anything we can look to in this life? His protection will never falter. Now his promises will never fail. Let's take a look. Remember those promises I asked you to look for when we first read the text? I said, there's some promises in there. See if you can pick them up. That was on purpose. Let's quickly go back and re-examine those again. Okay, they're just sitting right here. Regardless of the whatever I'm reading from the ESV, whatever you have, they're probably very similar. Let's look. 
The first half of 27, what are these promises? The shepherd, the true sheep will hear the voice of the true shepherd. According to his due time, the shepherd will call his sheep to himself. This is effectual calling. You think about a wandering friend or family member or whatever it is. You can trust and rest in the fact that a sovereign God is going to call those people whom he loves to himself out of their darkness, out of their shame, out of their shaking their fists. The shepherd's voice is effectual unto salvation. And you can rest in that because he's sovereign. Second one. Look at the second half of verse 27, the middle part. The good shepherd actually knows his sheep. He says, I know them. I'm not figuring it out. I actually know them, and I'm going to call them. Look at the last bit of verse 27. The sheep love and trust the shepherd, and they follow him. And what do we see the picture of? Christ going before his sheep into even the scary places. He says, I'm going to go before you, and you are going to follow me. I'm not going to stand at the back, and I'm not going to beat you with a whip and tell you to go into the dark hole that nobody knows about. I'm going to go first into the scary places, and I am going to sing your name and ask you to follow me in there. And I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to ask you to do anything I myself have not done first. It's amazing when you think about it. The sheep trust the shepherd and follow him. Look at verse 28. Another promise. He gives them eternal life and eternal security. Those whom God truly saves, he also keeps safe forever with him. This is eternal security, perseverance of the saints. He's going to walk with you. He holds tightly to you. Verse 29. God himself has said it, and he alone is powerful enough to make all of it happen. He's powerful enough. He said, I'm going to do this. And we say, okay, Lord, I trust you. I know you can do it. And every one of these promises have been given by grace and secured by the cross of Christ, and none of us in this room deserved it. Think about the promises that are being laid before you. None of us deserve it. But every bit of it has been given to us in grace and love and secured by the cross of Christ. Fellow Christians, let me ask you a question here. How do you think your life would change if you were able to actually believe that Christ holds tightly to you? This is the so what portion as we wrap it up. How do you think your life would actually look different if you were actually able to believe all those promises that we just went through? Would you be willing to finally and able to finally loosen your grip on the things of the world, knowing that the one who created the world holds on to you? Would you be able to loosen your grip up just a little bit? Would you have more confidence? Would you have more courage? Would you have more freedom from not having to defend your honor all the time? Would you have freedom to let go of your religious resume or how long you've been a member of this church or how long you've been a Christian? You can just let go of that because you know that your identity rests in Christ and Christ alone. Would you be willing to let go of that a little bit? Do you think your life would change in that way? you think you'd finally be able to rest in Christ and rest in His grace? Do you think it would free you up to check your ego, to check your pride? Your relentless pursuit of acclamation and admiration? Freedom to stop trying to stay in control of everything. Freedom to loosen your grip and trust the Lord, even just a little bit, as He calls us to rest. Would you have the freedom to trust Christ with your wandering child, with a family member you can think of? Freedom to go share the gospel and let the sovereign shepherd work the rest out, bumbling and stumbling as it may be. 
to actually do it, give you a little courage. Let's go out and share the gospel. And well, what if I don't know the verse just right? That's okay. God can use you. Trust the shepherd. He's going to work it out. It's not you doing the effectual calling. It's the Spirit doing the effectual calling, and that takes the load off. And so we go, and we go share the best news humanity could hear. It's that simple. The implication for this never-faltering protection and these unfailing promises are absolutely endless because they're grounded in a boundless God. And so I'm asking you, pleading with you to trust in Him, to rest in Him, to delight in Him. If you are here and you do not know Christ, thank you so much for showing up. We're so glad you're here. I would love to be a friend to you. We would love to be your friend. Thanks for coming. Really, seriously, thank you. If you're here and you do not know Christ, I, as a minister in the gospel, invite you to respond to the Good Shepherd's voice. If you feel your heart being strangely warmed, as Wesley said, and you feel the Spirit at work in your heart, I call you to respond and to respond to the Shepherd's voice and trust Him for the first time. It's not my words that do it. It's the Spirit taking the Word and applying it to your heart and drawing you to Himself. And so if you are here and you do not trust Christ, I invite you as a minister of the gospel, trust and rest in the Lord. Repent of your sin. Turn away from your self-salvation project and rest in Christ and Christ alone. It's that simple. God will work the rest of the stuff out. It's called progressive sanctification. But we rest in Christ. Come to Jesus and live. Stop trying to do it on your own. You can't. It's not going to work out. You think it will? Just ask around the room. It's not. So I call you to respond to Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's the hope. He doesn't say, go clean your life up and then come and then prove yourself to me. He said, no, 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 no. Come to me and I will give you rest. And all who come to me, I will never cast out because it shows that the Spirit's at work in their heart. Because they have to admit that they're a sheep without a shepherd. So come to Jesus and live. This is the hope of all God's people as we continue to struggle in this life, and I hope you see it. Where's the hope that we draw from this? What's the so what? Why should we care? This is the hope that we draw from this passage. Life's hard, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Life's hard. Sometimes two plus two do add up and you look at it and you're like, it makes three and a half. Where's the other? I don't know. Life's hard. So where do we find hope? Where do we find security in the midst of a life that's hard? Jesus. And we find great hope and security in the fact that Jesus said, I hold tightly to my sheep and I will hold on to them forever. No one Not even the devil himself can snatch one of the sheep out of the shepherd's hand. You can take that to the bank, ladies and gentlemen. Try and fight as you may. He's sovereign and he loves you and nobody can snatch him out of his hand. If you're one of the flock of God, rest in that, rejoice in that, delight in that, find hope in that, and lean into those promises. They'll never fail you. Why? Because His protection never falters and His promises never fail. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your mercy and Your kindness. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You that all the promises of God that we read about, forgetful as we are, all of those promises find their yes and amen in Christ. 
And so, oh Jesus, we look to you. We long to worship you for all that you've done. You have gone to the cross for us. And we're thankful that you hold us fast. You hold on to us. And as we struggle and wrestle and even have doubts in this life, we know because your word tells us that if we are part of your flock, we will never be snatched out of the shepherd's hand. Man, what comfort that is. And so, Lord, help us to rest in that. We're thankful, Lord, that a divine shepherd brings divine security. It's our only hope. And may we just live in awe of that. May we look at it and may we sing and may we wonder as we praise the Savior's name. These things we ask humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.